On Guido Talks this week, Nigel Farage quits frontline politics, Piers Morgan quits GMB, and the AirPod expenses scandal continues. All that and more, stick about. Hello and welcome to Guido Talks. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by founder and editor of Guido Forks, Paul Staines, and reporter Christian Calgi. Remember you can watch us on YouTube as well as listen to us wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And if you're watching us on YouTube, have a look at the links down in the descriptions where you can jump to whichever section of the podcast you fancy. So we're going to kick off this week by talking about one of the most dramatic stories of the week and that was Piers Morgan walking off the show that he has chaired for six years. Of course, Good Morning Britain. Paul, can you tell us about this? So Piers was uh, doing his usual... Actually, he wasn't doing his usual. He had done his usual ranting about Meghan Markle the day before and uh, Alex Berifant, the weatherman on the show, who's incidentally mixed race, um, launched into a... Piers style diatribe against Piers himself uh, for about 30 seconds before Piers went, I've had enough. If you want to be anchor of the show, have it. And stormed off. And to be honest, I thought this was a contrived thing and Piers doing what he does to generate the, uh, the readership, the views. Uh, but it turned out to be for real. In fact, we did a poll on Twitter of 4,000 uh, Guido followers and most of them, three quarters of them, thought it was staged. But it turned out he was in talks all day with Carolyn McCall, the ITV boss. She said the stuff he'd said about her, um, about Megan's mental health issues and calling her a liar effectively was unacceptable. And Piers said, I'm not going to apologise. And that was that. He's gone. Lots of speculation that he'll be back on GB News. I don't know if you're going to comment on that, Tom, or he's going to take a break for a while. I mean, he's been doing a pretty grueling show for five years, getting up at three in the morning. But to be fair, he has made that show, and it, and it pains me to say it. He did make it, it uh, something that you had to watch every now and then. And without him, I don't think it would be anything like it. And the great irony of all of this was, of course, that final show, the one where he stormed off, was the first time in GMB's history that it overtook BBC Breakfast in terms of ratings. Um, so Piers Morgan can arguably said to be leaving on a high. I doubt that it will achieve those sort of ratings anytime soon again. He actually did. He actually did send a tweet, didn't he, during the day, the day after, saying, you know, wins the ratings wars, job done, which I thought was uh, quite uh, typical. <laughs> Yeah, he knows when to leave. (laughs) I still think it was contrived. I still think that the the most peculiar thing about it was it was just a a really odd thing to walk off to. I mean, Piers is in, you know, gets in sparring fights every day. And yet this one thing, which didn't even seem too uh, pointed, he walks off, I still think there's going to be a big announcement at some point and he needed to find a get out and and did it with a flourish but I'm happy to be proved wrong in the coming weeks Possibly though I was watching it uh, in real time first thing in the morning and he was uh, 
having a little bit of a set to with the guy Alex before and it's quite something for you know the show that you can see yourself with the star of and the anchorman for the producer to tell you no sit there and take it we're going to give uh, the weatherman a chance to have a go at you and uh, put you inside <laughs> the case so I can imagine him seething when you know at five in the morning he was told that he was going to have to do that because he clearly was uh, not with the guy before he even started it is a high octane environment that studio especially when everyone's got up so early in the morning everyone's fuses are very short and readers may remember seeing ian dale storm off um that program not so long ago so this isn't an unprecedented uh, <laughs> occurrence in the gmb studio anyway as i said it pains me to be on piers side in this argument but he made a good point uh, look at this clip of him the next day on the doorstep I believe in freedom of speech. I believe in the right to uh, be allowed to have an opinion. Uh, if people want to believe Meghan Markle, that's entirely their right. I don't believe almost anything that comes out of her mouth. And I think the damage she's done to the British monarchy and to the Queen at a time when Prince Philip is lying in hospital is enormous and frankly contemptible. So uh, if I have to fall on my sword for expressing an honestly held opinion, about Meghan Markle and that diatribe of bilge that she came out with in that interview, so be it. Of course, the ongoing crises in Scotland, particularly the SNP, have continued well into this week. Uh, on the one hand, on Wednesday night, uh, the Deputy First Minister survived the Tory vote of no confidence. Actually, this was not so consequential uh, given that it was initiated as a threat to release legal advice, the majority of which uh, the Deputy First Minister did then do. So Sturgeon is the one to look out for in the coming days and weeks. Uh, but there was a Westminster-based scandal with the SNP this week as a staffer uh, came to light as having made two uh, sexual harassment allegations against one male SNP MP and one female SNP MP uh, and there were accusations that actually these claims were swept under the carpet uh, but it didn't take long for one of those names to emerge did it Tom? No it didn't and actually it was the newspaper The Herald which revealed uh, this after having seen an internal document that showed it was actually the Westminster chief whip of the SNP Patrick Grady who was named in uh, one complaint at an SNP Christmas party back in December 2016. Now, the reason why this is turning into a bit more of a scandal um, than just sort of the usual, you know, we're going to assess this seriously, um, he's suspended while that happens, is because the complaint happened five years ago. And there's a lot of word now about what, what was done in the intervening five years and were there people within the SNP who tried to cover this up? Calgary, can I ask, you're all over this story, can I ask you why the female MP hasn't been named? I mean, I know the name, but I'm not sure we can name her, but I don't know why. Do you? <laughs> uh, we'll have to see. Uh, we're, we're looking into this, we're talking to all the right people. Um, it tends, I've, te I've found it tends to be the case that sometimes uh, there I don't know, there just isn't the, the political impetus behind. Obviously, the chief whip, that is a particularly scandalous accusation. It also happened a long time before uh, the female MP, as I understand it, happened in January 
2020 and given coronavirus there may be an excuse that it is being investigated we don't know where that investigation is up to and we will certainly find out and if necessary we will not hold back on naming I think talking about this entire SNP scandal is um, useful in the context of wider Scottish politics because we've seen something of a turning in the polls in Scotland as well over the last couple of weeks, or certainly over the last month, which has... We we, we went from 20 polls where uh, the pro-independence, pro-Skexit forces were ahead to now we've seen five polls where um, the pro-union side are ahead. And a lot of that probably is to do with the success of the UK-wide vaccine rollout, the comparisons to the EU on which this debate hinges quite a lot, but also undeniably the scandal that the SNP has has wrapped itself in, um, not only to do with sexual assault down in Westminster, but of course the response to the sexual assault allegations against Alex Salmond and how that was handled in Holyrood, um, that all seems to be coming home to roost and taking a bit of the shine off the SNP. I think basically we're past peak SNP. We're not seeing any polls where they're getting sort of above 50% of the uh, voting intention anymore. And crucially, there was one poll this week that showed that actually they wouldn't even gain a majority in the Scottish Parliament in May. Now, if that transpires, that'll be a massive blow for the SNP because they're pinning their hopes on a second referendum, on that having the endorsement of a majority SNP government. And if they fail to get that, well, it takes the wind out of their sails. Well, one scandal that's come back to life this week is Podgate, the case of Andrew Rayner's £249 AirPods. Well, the pair of AirPods. Here's why. This clip. Going back to the past where things have been wasted, it's always different in hindsight, isn't it? The government would argue that they didn't know that money was going to be wasted. They thought they were trying to get a test and trace system working. People might take issue with what they did and have done, and it's been proved that it didn't go well and shouldn't have gone in the way that it did. But when you look at things and you look at waste, for instance, one of the things you've been accused of is putting in an expensive claim for your AirPods. Now, you might argue that that was necessary in a tech world when you're trying to operate in lockdown, but it doesn't look good, and it's very easy to point the finger, isn't it? Well, £249 on a pair of AirPods so that I can carry out my job, which on average I use four hours a day now Mm. on Zooms, is nowhere near billions of pounds that has been wasted on contracts to people with no experience whatsoever. So my answer is that we wouldn't mismanage the finances going forward. We would ensure that the management of the finances is prudent, as it should be because it's taxpayers' money, and that we reward the workers that have been on the front line putting their lives at risk and give them the pay rise that they deserve. So Kate Garraway there, or Mrs Draper as she's also known, um, pushed the point that other people didn't have these AirPods and she gave the excuse that uh, she needed them for the four hours a day of Zoom calls that she did. Now, this pushed us to think, we haven't seen her in these Zoom calls and we watch a lot of Zoom calls for our sins wearing pods and we check and guess what as you can see from these photos on the screen right now not one single instance of her wearing her expensive airpods since she's bought the last pair of them Um, and in any case we found out when we were doing this investigation from the parliamentary authorities that as part of their package of it package they provide 
earpods for use on Zoom calls. There's no excuse. Yes, that's right. The Parliamentary ICT service provides all, uh, as, as part of their standard package to MPs, provides a headset that they can use um, for video conferencing. And it was quite remarkable. We weren't being selective in, in that sort of swathe of photos that those of you who are watching on YouTube can see. Uh, we, we went through sort of every single Zoom call that she had shown publicly and some of those that we'd published as well throughout the last 11 months. Um, and Angela Rayner wasn't wearing AirPods in any of them. Um, it's really quite, quite an extraordinary uh, claim to make and it really just digs the hole deeper. She, uh, she set herself up to fail as well, didn't she? Because immediately after she professed that she used the AirPods for Zoom calls, she appeared at the Labour Party local election launch via Zoom, and guess what? She wasn't wearing AirPods. So it's not just the past. Her story doesn't even hold water in the, going forward. This has been one of those weeks where the main stories are not overtly political. The main stories leading the front pages, of course, we had the Harry and Meghan interview at the start of the week. But what emerged as the biggest story of the week uh, in the middle was the disappearance, the kidnap of Sarah Everard from Clapham in South London. And of course, it's affected many people. Uh, they say every story is local. Uh, and this one uh, served to be because the policeman uh, who was... Uh, a suspect in the kidnapping, turns out, was a parliamentary policeman uh, and part of the diplomatic protection unit. And it's since emerged that uh, he was mainly based at the Nine Elms US Embassy. So we had a lot of touching uh, sort of personal testimonials from particularly female members of parliamentary staff who are, of course, incredibly worried that the people that are meant to be protecting them uh, are involved in this awful story. Uh, one person who didn't grasp the sensitivity of the issue, of course, was the Tory mayoral candidate, Sean Bailey, who on the afternoon that uh, this uh, policeman was taken into custody uh, and the investigation was in full flow, decided to politicise the issue uh, by saying that her disappearance was symptomatic of crime in London and that a vote for him would end that situation and he then doubled down on it while launching his anti-crime manifesto the next morning and we can see that clip. You were widely criticised yesterday for a tweet that was perceived to politicise the murder of Sir Everard while also saying that you empathise as a father and as a, um, as, a, as a husband. My question is do you have to be a father and a husband to care about Sarah Everard being murdered? And do you regret politicising uh, the murder in this way? First thing to say is I feel so such pain for the family. I don't have any idea. No one can know what they're going through. Secondly, no, I don't regret putting the tweet out because it's to make people focus on the fact that people have been murdered routinely on the streets of London. And of course, you don't need to be a father or, or, or a husband to, to understand the pain and be concerned about these things. But what we do need in London is a mayor who's focused on these things. What we do need in London is a mayor who's, who's present, who's trying to make the streets of London safe. Because let's be clear, having parts of London that are no-go areas because crime is so bad doesn't suit anyone, men, women, or children. We need to make the streets of London safer. I want to put it to you like this. In the year before lockdown, 15 
thousand knife offences. This is unacceptable. Un we just can't live like that in London anymore. And that's why it will always shine a light on this. You know, when you're a youth worker and you have children go missing and then they turn up murdered, it is devastating to the whole community. So I feel no regret at all shining a light on the fact that people feel stressed in London about crime. Tensions are clearly running high, although uh, Jenny Jones, the Green Party Baroness, uh, decided to ramp up uh, levels of uh, intriguing policy suggestions to deal with this situation when in the Lords on Wednesday night she called for a 6pm curfew uh, for all men uh, and uh, it did rather seem like one of those policy suggestions that could have come out of the thick of it so I think we'll say yes and no to that Don't the Greens uh advocate that we should recognise people's right to self-identify as whatever gender they like. So, obviously, come 5.59, any man who wanted to go out in those circumstances would self-identify as a night woman. Uh, you're the expert I, on these issues, Calvin, isn't that right? I, I think we, we will say that this policy suggestion, this amendment that has been floated may not stand up to the usual scrutiny provided by the House of Lords uh, and that it may be uh, a PR uh, stunt to get some headlines, but there we are. The repercussions of the budget still continue and uh, a new front has opened up, pretty obviously was going to open up actually in my view, because Rishi has uh, repudiated almost 50 years of uh, Orthodox Conservative Party thinking on taxes by being the first Chancellor to put up corporation tax since Dennis Healy in 1974. What happened? The Reform Party, now led by uh, Tice, was out to say that they were now the only low-tax party in the market. Uh, Richard Tice is, uh, didn't pull any punches. He described the Tories as the con socialists and, and that's backed up by what a lot of commentary in the times i saw mark Littlewood for the Institute of economic affairs described this as the return of butzkalism that's when uh rob butler and uh gates had the same economic policies the shadow chancellor and the actual chancellor uh talking of um the opening up another flank the labor party quite obviously also weaponized the issue pat mcfadden shadow treasury minister had this to say in parliament Thatchernomics and Osbornomics, buried in full public view by Rishinomics. No more laugher curves, no more pretending tax cuts always magically lead to more revenues, no more tax bombshell posters, Singapore on sea, laid to rest by Budget 2021. Of course, what's particularly frustrating is that Rishi didn't take our advice uh, because in that article, we pointed to a podcast clip from two weeks ago in which all three of us were saying exactly this point, that if Rishi concedes this ideological ground, Labour will use it as an argument for the next two elections. And already Pat McFadden has pointed out the Labour Party, the, the Tory party cannot, a Freudian slip there, the Tory party cannot wheel out those tax bombshell posters anymore uh, because uh, they have undermined their own footing. I mean, there was a press release from Annalise Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor, welcoming uh, Rishi to their side of the argument and, and really just deriding him. I think it really is a strategic error. 
And, I mean, none of this is to say that this money that has been borrowed, the, the, this £300 billion that has paid for the coronavirus crisis so far, um, has to be paid, paid back. Of course it does. The question is, how do you raise the money to pay it back? Do you grow your economy, maybe slim down the size of the public sector a little bit, um, or do you whack taxes on corporations? Which is going to be the most um, productive way of paying back that money? You don't have to see the argument that you can't pay back, um, that you don't have to pay back uh, money that is borrowed. Of course you do. But the question is, how do you do that? And the trouble is the Tory party... Um, nailed itself into a very, very small space uh, in terms of what it could do because of its manifesto commitments to not raise income tax, not raise VAT, to do all of these things that they said they wouldn't do. And they're left with um, some, some very silly things that they can do. I'd, I'd much rather uh, VAT be raised rather than corporation tax. I mean, um, every tax is bad, but I think there are some that are worse than others when it comes to damaging economic growth. I'm sorry to sound very old-fashioned here, but there is another thing you could do, which is cut spending. And, you know, when you see all these ads for the NHS recruiting diversity officers, you just think there must be fat. It cannot be the case that there is no spending that is wasteful in a £600 billion budget. Not possible. One point to point out is that the reason Richard Tice was doing the set-piece attack on the Tories was because Nigel Farage has formally quit politics. Now, before you say, again, I think he really means it this time. <coughs> he's, um, he's doing, as part of his retirement pa compensation package, he's now doing cameo uh, video recordings on request. It was, uh, when we first wrote the story, only £63.75 to get him to record a video wishing you luck or wishing you happy birthday or wishing uh, best wishes for your daughter's wedding. And now it's up to £75 last time I looked. So £75 for 30 seconds of work. Sounds like Nigel could be onto a good little earner there. Good luck, Nigel. Enjoy your retirement. You've earned it. And it is, it is, it is, it's exactly the same idea as Piers Morgan, leaving on a high, because let's be honest, the Reform Party, as it is now called, is not expecting to do particularly well in the local elections coming up now, and certainly in not any of mm. the mayoral elections around the country. So um, potentially, Nigel will leave as that figure who has uh, won two national election victories, has been victorious, and has packed up at the right time. Let you say that. I, I, the, the Tories are riding high in the polls, but if the Tories are on 5% uh, uh, <coughs> lead and you've got the Reform Party staking out the sort of uh, small state, small uh, low tax kind of position, that could take a few percentage points. It could be the difference between uh, victory and losing. Again. It will be a it long, could. hard uh, slog to get that into the public consciousness. Um, so that, that's got to uh, be a long time to sort of build I up, I think. Yeah. I do, wonder if the, I do wonder if the Electoral Commission's um, incredible delay in approving the Reform Party's rebrand for, for well beyond what they should have played a part, because I really think it took a lot of wind out of the Reform Party's sales. They've been given such short amount of time between being approved and the local elections to build up uh, 
you know, notoriety and public recognition uh, that I think it was always going to be very difficult. But as Tom says, he's going to be one of those few political careers that don't end in failure. And that speaks a hell of a lot about the sort of um, the sort of legacy Nigel Farage is going to have. Well, talking of Nigel Farage, how can we not talk about the European Union and the extraordinary claims that one EU president made at the start of this week? I am, of course, talking about Charles Michel. Um, It seems like everyone in the EU is called Michel these days, but um, Charles Michel is the president of the council. um, And he claimed erroneously uh, at the start of this week that the UK had a ban on exporting vaccines. Of course, he was trying to make up for the fact or sort of mitigate the fact that the EU had banned the export of quarter of a million vaccines to Australia um, and, and sort of saying, well, everyone's doing vaccine nationalism. The problem was it just wasn't true. And this became a bit of a diplomatic incident. The UK summoned the EU representative to come and um, dress them down about this uh, flagrant lie. And it took actually Boris raising this in private Minister's questions in the House of Commons saying that the UK does not, emphatically does not have a ban on exporting vaccines. It has not blocked the export of a single vaccine, whereas it's actually the EU that has blocked the export of 250,000 of them. Um, And belatedly, um, at the end of that Wednesday, the EU finally conceded the point. The UK does not have a ban on vaccine exports, and yet the EU has imposed one. That's the difference. But Britain hasn't exported a single dose, has it? We don't have a large vaccine manufacturing sector, so it's not really, it's a bit of a moot point. Um, The EU famously has a large uh, manufacturing sector. We don't have many plants. We're trying to build them bloody quickly, but the fact is that we don't have many of the plants. The real point of contention here isn't who's blocking vaccines, it's who signed the contracts earliest and how tightly were those contracts written. I agree with you. And the UK absolutely smashed it out of the park. It is still the case that Britain has not exported a single dose of vaccine. Uh, rightly or wrongly, that's just the fact of the matter. Haven't blocked a single dose leaving either. <laughs> <laughs> it's not active, we just haven't got round to it yet, all right? <laughs> we'll do. And of course, this ongoing success of the UK vaccine programme compared to the EU's woeful record in jabbing people, um, it seems to be having a bit of an effect. This is potentially part of the reason why now only 39% of people said they want to rejoin the European Union, a drop of eight points in the last couple of months. This was a poll that we reported this week from YouGov that showed that there has been a colossal collapse in support for rejoining the European Union. I'm sure, no doubt, a lot of that has to do with how people see that an independent speedboat country, as Ursula von der Leyen called us, has been able to handle the vaccine rollout compared to the lumbering European Union. But I'm sure also there's a bit of status quo bias here. Once something's happened, uh, people are uh, are more wary of the big change. And suddenly the big change doesn't become leaving the EU's market, it becomes rejoining it. And it seems that the further we get away from from the the point of of the 1st of January this year, uh, the more embedded our position outside of the European Union will become. We spoke earlier about how Sean Bailey's had a pretty disastrous week uh, as we approach to the May London elections. Uh, well, he hasn't just been shooting himself in the foot. There was a very interesting development on Saturday night as Lawrence Fox, 
declared he will be standing for London Mayor for the Reclaim Party, mainly on a platform of uh, anti-lockdown, uh, so very much uh, sort of covering ground that the Reform Party are also pushing, uh, but also on the issue of free speech, as you'd expect. He's clashed with Sadiq Khan many times on his woke statue review and various other cultural issues. This is going to be very interesting. We've not yet seen Lawrence Fox uh, at all tested with the general public. Um, it was only about a year ago that he first appeared on Question Time, and that really sparked his uh, ascent into the political world. Uh, and since then, obviously, done very well on Twitter, but Twitter's a very different thing to an actual uh, electorate. Uh, now, the reality of this may just be that it splits the right vote and allows Sadiq Khan in, because not only have you got Sean Bailey for the Tories and you've got Lawrence Fox, but you've also got all sorts of other right-wing candidates, uh, especially anti-lockdown candidates. Of course, you've got Piers Corbyn, you've got UKIP, you've got David Curtin, who's currently a Brexit party uh, AM, but he's going to be standing on his own party. This week, we saw a poll saying Sadiq's going to win on the first round with 51% of the vote. Uh, I'm now starting to think that might be the best thing for the Tory party, uh, because if Sean Bailey is completely crushed in the first round, he might just go away and stop causing issues for CCHQ. It's interesting you mentioned that poll because <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned that poll where Sadiq was ahead with fifty-one percent of the vote because it also polled those minor candidates and leading the pack of sort of new parties and minor parties. You know the the Piers Corbins, the Lawrence Foxes, the David Curtins, all all that lot. Leading the pack was Dr. Gammons. From UKIP, the hilariously <laughs> named candidate of that party, who led them on 2%. All of the others were on less than that. Now, that means that you, you need to get 5% to keep your deposit in a London mayoral election. It's quite a hefty deposit as well. I would be very, very, very surprised if Lawrence Fox manages to get over 5% and keep his deposit. In fact, I think I tweeted it and said I'd eat a picture of that tweet if Lawrence, Fo <laughs> if Lawrence Fox gets over 5%. So um, okay. I'm willing to be proved you, wrong, but I think would, it's... <laughs> well, we'd take that. Would you, would you up your bet? I reckon Lawrence Fox will do the best of the other parties. So the, uh, the, the, he'll beat Gammons, basically. He'll beat Gammons. Wow, that will go down um, badly with his brand. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. He, I mean, he he might well spend a huge amount of money on advertising, become much better known, and get four point five percent. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. But but the thing is, he's launching his sort of anti woke party in London of all places, the sort of most metropolitan part of the country, the part of the country that. UKIP successfully rails against. I mean, all of these sort of people who sort of rail against, you know, the Islington worldview, all this sort of stuff, they do very well in the parts of the country that aren't London. So it's very, very peculiar that they're all choosing to kick off their anti-London political careers in the centre of politics in this country. It's very, very... I, I don't, I don't agree with you. I think, I think you're misreading the demography. Woke versus anti-woke is basically a generational thing. It's not... It's not... Uh, Generational and educational, perhaps, but I don't think it's as clear-cut as you seem to think. Well, I think London is the most woke part of England, um, which is an odd place to launch an anti-woke campaign. I would bet any money that Cambridgeshire, Oxfordshire is more woke. <laughs> 
Fair enough. I think we can basically take an, an inverse look at where UKIP did well in 2014 and where the you, Brexit party you see, did well it's in interesting you're saying this. You're sa- it's interesting you're saying this, Tom, because if I were to set up an anti-woke television station, I might also not base it in London or indeed Paddington. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty much the same line of argument, isn't it? No, it's not, because we're reaching out to people all over the country. Obviously, you're going to have to have your headquarters in a metropolitan area where lots of people live to, to get the um, people to, to do I, the I, show. I... You can reach out. Whether the difference is we don't stop broadcasting at the edges of London, which is whereas if you're standing for election, you can only be voted for by the people of London if you're running for, for London mayor. So I think there's a big, big difference there. Today, at some point, the government is due to release a video which... We're calling Vaccine the Movie, a public information film. Uh, we've done our own little trailer giving credit to the heroine who is responsible for getting us out of the pandemic we've been in. Here you go. Every day counting. There is no option of failure. Incredible. It's just a colossal effort that I don't think people will realise has happened behind the scenes. Every vaccine we've given has given hope to somebody. Extraordinary unexpected, fantastic. It was one day of real joy and thinking, yes, there's a way out of this. Well, on that note, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for sticking with us for another episode of Guido Talks. Remember to subscribe if you're watching on YouTube and click that notification bell to get reminded every week when a new episode comes out, but also to follow us on whatever podcast platform you use. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, we're there, we're everywhere. Thank you once again for watching this week and we'll see you again, same time, next week.